Listeners out there, Samantha is actually muted and can't speak, but today is going to be her birthday. Like today right now is not her birthday because we're recording this well in advance. But when this is released, it's releasing on her actual birthday. So this is going to be a special birthday episode for her. And what we're going to be covering is events that historically happened on the day of her birth. But before we get started, I wanted to give a little bit of background on how we met. Samantha was a manager who ended up hiring me at the bank. And honestly, like it felt like a fever dream. I don't remember her when I interviewed, but I do remember her when she finally showed back up because she was out like the first week that I started. But when she showed up like tall, hot, wearing fuck me heels like button to the nines i was like oh damn love this chick and then she like talks shit about the manager and then i was like double love her and then at the end of the day i remember thinking like she's got her shit so together like she's so buttoned up blah 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 and then she took her her like suit jacket off her blazer off and she had like tattoos everywhere and i was like oh god i'm a goner i'm a goner and that was 14 years ago, I think. So, you know, thanks for 14 years. And I'm hoping I get to be a part of 14 plus many, many more years of your birthdays now. So yeah, we're going to cover current events for your birthday. And I know normally we start out with a drink pairing and we'll get to it. But before we get to the drink pairing, I wanted to kick off with a few interesting facts about things that have happened on this day throughout history. Are you ready? I don't know, because am I going to leave this feeling better or worse? (laughs) You might have a mix of both. Okay. I think my favorite part of that intro, by the way, was the fact that you thought I had everything together. I know. I know that it's wrong now, but, you know. Speaking of which, hi, I'm Montana, and that's Samantha, the birthday girl, and you're listening to Reaper Tales. It is still the same (laughs) podcast. It's still the same podcast. It's going to be a wild, wild uh, intro. So, um, you know, we'll start out with some people you share a birthday with, Sam. First up, let's get a little political, and that's the only time on this podcast that I will ever say that. <laughs> that's the only time you'll give a, a warning. That's true. Sam, you share a birthday with Andrew. Don't worry, it's not Jackson. It's Johnson. Born December 29th, 1808 in Raleigh, North Carolina, of all places, Andrew Johnson was known for being the vice president to Abraham Lincoln and assumed office after Lincoln had a terrible night at the theater. (laughs) A great thing to be known for, but unfortunately, actually, I knew that one. Oddly enough, that might be the only thing that I know, but we'll go with that. Also, I know I said, don't worry, because it wasn't Andrew Jackson, but Johnson may not have been much better. Johnson was the first U.S. president to face the process of impeachment. Yeah, it wasn't much better. <laughs> was was acquitted <laughs> by the Senate. <laughs> he left office in 1869. He is ranked as one of the worst due to the poor leadership during Reconstruction, the Reconstruction era. But in all fairness, he was not exactly dealt a great hand. He was taking over. So, I mean, 
Yeah, for sure. You never think that your boss is going to go watch a show and then all of a sudden you're in charge, you know. But a cheers to you, a big old cheers to you. Uh, This next one, I'm pleased to inform you that you also share a birthday with Ted Danson, who was best known as the bar owner, Sam Malone, from the TV series Cheers. Okay, interesting. I didn't know that one. Yep. Ted was born December 29th, 1947. And I saved the best for last. It is my greatest pleasure to tell you that you share a birthday with Mary Tyler Moore. What? Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's the best. Sorry. Out of, <laughs> out of those three, that is by far the best. I will drink to that. She was born December. Hope you figured it out by now. 29th, 1936. And I don't have to tell you what she's famous for. National treasure. National treasure. Now, on to some more serious things to share your birthday with. Over the centuries, December 29th has been known for many things, such as the Soviet Union Space Defense Program being established in 1967, England's Sex Discrimination and Equal Pay Act being passed, and the world's oldest orangutan dying at age 55 in 2007. <laughs> I know. Well, I mean, if you if it li- if this orangutan lived to 55, like, great life. Yeah, I guess. Their name was, because I knew you'd want to know, Nanja, and resided at the Miami Metro Zoo. There's something significant that continues to show up on this day that is not just your birthday. Before I jump into that topic, however, I want to share two more events that occurred on your birthday. And I know the anticipation is killing all of us, but I just had to add these in. In 2006, Denmark started a New Year's Eve tradition. They would throw dishes at their friends' houses. All year, the old dishes are collected for the occasion. If you have a lot of broken dishes by your house, you have a lot of friends. Could you imagine being the person who didn't have any dishes (laughs) outside of their house? Like, they spent all year collecting these dishes. I would consider that a win because I wouldn't have a mess to clean up. Fair enough. Me personally, my goal is not to have a bunch of friends. I don't know if this is news to you, but (laughs) it's never been my goal to have a lot of friends. I I would feel some type of way and I would go break dishes outside my own house. I believe that. So that I I wholeheartedly believe that. But I'm quite odd. I would break dishes outside of your house. Thank you. Thank you. You would travel 300 plus miles to break dishes outside my house. That's all I want in life. Absolutely. So. Yeah, goal achieved. Lastly, in Russia in 2011, authorities discovered caviar, a large amount of rare caviar. It wasn't the simple fact that they found caviar or that it was a large, rare amount that they found that made it newsworthy. It was where they found it. Do you want to take a guess where they found this caviar? I have no idea. The caviar was being stored in the morgue in St. Petersburg. You can keep it. <laughs> you can make it. <laughs> it's probably refrigerated really well, and that's great and dandy, but no thanks. When I read that, I was like, I'm sorry, excuse me? <laughs> they were keeping the fish in the morgue? I, I guess, yeah, um, a businessman... And morgue attendant were arrested over the incident. Like, I didn't know you could be arrested for storing caviar at your work, but um, 
guess you can be. Better put mine up. Uh, they claimed that the caviar was being kept for a personal New Year's celebration. I was holding it for somebody. (laughs) 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 This is like the ultimate. (laughs) Oh, God. I swear, it's not my caviar. (laughs) My rare, large amount of rare caviar. I never looked in the box. I didn't know it was in there. Oh, I got a burp. Oh, I pass. Oh, speaking of burping, before before I, I keep going, I, I wanted to bring this up. Listeners don't know this, but I burp quite a bit. Elsie knows this. I know this. <laughs> uh, so it has to be cut out of the recording. Uh, I'm just a gassy person. Well, the other day I was on a call, like in a meeting, and this was like a this it was a big meeting with like high like higher up people at work and I thought my mic was <laughs> muted. <laughs> I just I just burped. And like you guys have heard my burp. Yeah, they are not small. They're not small town. <laughs> and if, if you if you guys listen to the ends of episodes every once in a while, I will like cut when I was doing the editing before Kelsey took over, I would take all of the burps that I had and I would <laughs> take them together and I'd put them as like an Easter egg at the end of the episode. So if you've ever heard that, write in and let me know. <laughs> and you can you know what the burps sound like. But point being is like I burped on this call and somebody went, excuse you. <laughs> <laughs> I would have been that person if I had been on that call. <laughs> I went, oh, thank you. And <laughs> just so, oh, God, it was real embarrassing. <laughs> it was real. Anyways, um, I died of mortification. But luckily, you came so back. I, <laughs> I came back. I've been so good about muting myself over the years, <laughs> burping on that. And, you know, something that is uh, not recorded and gets released to, you know, tens of thousands of people. But Kelsey, thanks for cutting out my burps for me. Love you. Mean it. It took this long, to be perfectly honest. I know. Well, I've been so vigilant, but I was kind of tired last week and I just I didn't have my vigilance up. You know, that's just how it is. With that out of the way, let's get to the subject for today. The event that occurs most on your birthday, and the reason we have the drink pairing we do, it's plane crashes. I knew (laughs) that intro, after you sent me the drink, (laughs) I kind of put it together. I do do want to let you know that you also have a more than what I would consider a normal amount of airport bombings that happen on your birthday. You might want to get that checked out by your doctor. I don't know. Don't know how you deal with that. This isn't (laughs) particularly helpful considering I'm flying to see you the next time for the first time in like years. I know. (laughs) Maybe I'll just forego the trip. Now that that's on the table, our drink pairing. I'm going to take a sip. Samantha, why don't you tell us what our drink pairing is? So apparently our drink is called the paper airplane and it has one and a half ounce Aperol, one and a half ounce I don't even know what this, I, I don't know how to pronounce this, Am, Amaro Nonino? 
Yeah. Um, one and a half ounce bourbon. No, that one. One and a half ounce fresh lemon juice. And two one inch paper airplanes. <laughs> so I, I didn't make it tonight, but I did make it <laughs> two nights ago. It's actually pretty good. So you're going to fill the the shaker with ice, pour all four ingredients in the shaker, shake over your shoulder because you got to be fancy for about 15 to 20 seconds. And then, you know, to serve neat, you're going to strain it in a glass. Obviously, if you're not doing neat, then you'll have ice. It's pretty self-explanatory. And you're going to garnish with the paper airplanes. Yeah. Don't eat the paper. I mean, do if you want, but don't. I don't judge. It's fine if you want to do do. that. You might need, you might want to after you finish drinking that because that's a lot of um, things. Yeah. But maybe don't. Wait until, yeah, just, just don't. Let's, 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 let's not. See how you feel in the end. Now I get to hear about all the pain issues on my birthday. So I did this a little bit different. No. There are actually four plane crashes that I can find that happened on this day over the years. I'm not going to go into detail on all four. I'm going to mainly cover one, but I am going to give you a brief overview of the other three. Okay. I, I'm, what I take from this is just don't fly on my birthday. Yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of people do because it's after the holidays. Statistically, you're, you're probably going to be in a, in a plane crash during that time. Actually, you know what? I take that back. What I take from this is instead of traveling on my birthday attend birthday gatherings on my birthday instead of not doing it and traveling it doesn't you don't even have to have somebody in your life that has a birthday on that day just celebrate samantha's birthday that's what we're saying there you go yeah stay home okay so first up we have china airlines flight 359 it was a boeing 747 freighter It crashed on December 29th, 1991, shortly after takeoff from Chiang Kai-shek International Airport near Taipei, Taiwan. Several minutes after takeoff, the crew reported problems with the number two engine, prompting Taipei Air Traffic Control to vector the flight into a left turn to return to the airport. Approximately two minutes later, the crew reported that they were unable to turn left. The ATC, Air Traffic Control, approved a right-hand turn instead. This was the last radio contact made by the crew. The crew lost control of the aircraft, and it struck a hill, right wing first, near Wanlei Tape. The crash occurred at approximately 3.05 p.m., at an altitude of 700 feet, which is very low. All flight crew members died in the crash, and there were no injuries on the ground. So they didn't hit anybody on the ground. Everybody on the flight died. Oh, okay. Thank you for that clarification, because I was really trying to do the math. (laughs) Okay. 700? That's so low. Yeah, 700 is real low. Next, we're going to head over to Turkey and fast forward to 1994. The Turkish airline flight 278, operated by a Boeing 737, was a domestic flight scheduled from Ankara, Eisenboga, 
Airport and Van Ferret Mellon Airport. During its final approach to land, it crashed. Five of the seven crew and 52 of the 69 passengers lost their lives. There had been snowstorms going on at the time of the crash, and from what I could like figure out, from what I could find, ATC had actually told all of the flights in the area to stop approaching the airport to do not try and land during this snowstorm. I don't know if like this flight didn't get the memo or if they were like in dire needs of landing. I mean, you have situations where they might be low on fuel and they don't really have a choice. So, you know. Yeah. Uh, And this actually, it was the deadliest aviation accident involving a Boeing 737 at that time. Okay. At that time. Thank you. Yeah. In 2012, Red Wings Airlines Flight 9268 crash landed in Moscow. This is one that I'm actually going to cover later, but I'm going to give you a brief overview. It was a passenger jet that thankfully had no passengers on board at the time. But unfortunately, five of the eight crew members were killed. So, yeah. Today, however, we're going to talk about the Eastern Airlines Flight 401. This one's wild because I do remember hearing it from another podcast like years ago. I don't remember what podcast it was, but as I was doing the notes, I was like, this sounds so familiar. So I know I heard it somewhere before. So let's fly into this one. Really? That was unnecessary. (laughs) The fact that you rolled your eyes and Kelsey like laughed, just, (laughs) just chef's kiss. <laughs> oh goodness. On December 29th, 1972, an Eastern Airlines Lockheed L1011 TriStar attempted to land in Miami, Florida. It plowed into the Everglades a good distance short of the airport. It threw dozens of survivors from the plane. The crash killed 101 people, destroyed a state-of-the-art airliner, and ended up confusing the airline industry as to how it even happened. Oh. Yeah. How could the most advanced passenger jet simply fly into a swamp on a clear night? Because of the time restraint we have, I won't be able to go into the minute details of this accident, but I will try to summarize it as best as possible without leaving anything out. In April of 1972, Eastern Airlines became the first carrier to have the brand new L-1011 TriStar in their fleet. The wide-body TriJet was built with a revolutionary philosophy that only the best onboard technology was acceptable. And if that technology didn't exist, Lockheed would invent it. The L-1011 was the first airliner capable of flying on an autopilot from takeoff to touchdown. Lockheed even boasted that it could fly all the way across the United States without the pilot ever having to touch the control column. That's a dangerous claim to make. It isn't, it isn't. Because it was. It had the technology within these planes was so advanced that they reset the flight hours for pilots on this. 
So when, when you're a pilot, your flight hours are accumulated. So you, you get to see like how, I don't know how skilled you are in, in flight. Whenever, uh, this TriStar came out, they had to reset it based on TriStar. Like this 1011, they were like, while this person has 30,000 hours of flight hours, they only have 300 hours with TriStar because the technology was far more advanced okay. than what any of the pilots had ever used. Okay. So it also was a learning curve. So keep that in mind. Flight 401 uh, was Eastern Airlines' inaugural L-1011. The route service was from JFK to Miami. So this plane was put into commission to make that trip over and over again. Like, that's where they go. The flight was typically filled with New Yorkers the day after Christmas who were searching for warmer temperatures. And the flight on December 29th, 1972 was fully booked. I do want to note that while the flight was fully booked, 65 of the prospective passengers never made it to the airport due to wintry weather slowing down traffic. Which seems like it's telling all already, but okay. Foreboding. Lucky them. Foreboding. When, well, you already know what happened, but this is just talking about uh, the event that happened. When the flight departed New York, there were 163 passengers and 13 crew on board, which was actually a small amount of people who were on board for the type of flight that it was. Again, there were 65 passengers missing. So you're looking at over 200 people that would typically be on this flight. So over by over 200, how much? Like that's a fourth, right? A fourth of, of the passenger, a fourth to a third, somewhere, but somewhere between a fourth and a third of the passengers are missing. Thank Kelsey, do math for us. So yeah, typically two, a quarter. I was right. A quarter. Yeah. 254 would be your typical. That, I mean, that's pretty significant. Fully booked flight. 25% so. shortage. Like, and, and I mean, I don't know if anybody's ever been on flights where you have a very low amount of people on the flight, just in general. They literally have to tell you to like, even if there's only five people on the flight, you have to disperse so that the weight works for the flight. So, I mean, you're talking about 25% missing. That's pretty significant, I would think. Especially if, I mean, I mean, let's just like throw it up in the air. But what if all of them were from the same section of the plane, right? Because you have like seats. Typically you have assigned seats. Some of them don't do that. But I mean... You you have to have it evenly spaced or whatever so that the the weight is evenly distributed. So, I mean, that could make a really big difference. I'll never forget, like, the first flight I was on by myself. I didn't, I didn't get on a plane until I was an adult. I booked a flight to come out and see my now husband for a fun weekend. <laughs> and uh, it was the first time I was on a flight. I was like, you know, early twenties, whatever. I'm like, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it. So I took off in Birmingham. From Birmingham, there was a layover in Atlanta. It's always in Atlanta. <laughs> yeah, I went up to to Raleigh. Uh, well, now you ha- you can do direct flights to Charlotte. I know. I can. It was Raleigh. So there was a layover in um, Atlanta. And the planes that leave from Birmingham, even though it is an international airport, they are 
small. They are small. And this was a tiny plane. And it was me and like maybe three other people. And I'll never forget. They put me because I was a tiny human being next to another tiny human being in the same row, even though there were multiple rows open. And this woman began to pray as we like we were like start like we had taken off and we were starting to like even out or whatever. But there was I mean, on those smaller planes, you get a lot of turbulence, turbulence. And I was told that that was normal. But when she started to pray, I was like, should I pray? Do I, do I, am I supposed to pray you too? Should, you should <laughs> never, should never pray. So that was, that was my. So the first flight that I had um, to see you actually was, there was a, a layover in O'Hare because that, that's how flights work and they make a lot of sense. I fly from Birmingham to O'Hare and then O'Hare to Charlotte is whatever. Makes no sense. Why not? But from O'Hare to Charlotte, there were six people on that flight <laughs> total, and it was Southwest, so you don't have assigned seating, and most people wanted to be in the front, and they were like, oh, no, 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 we're going to have to disperse you guys. So they, they spread us all out, and it was the first time I had ever been in a flight that was not fully booked, fully booked. So I went from fully booked, you had to sit in a seat, there were, there were no real options to you can sit wherever. Oh, wait. Actually, no, you can't because you weigh too much all in the front. So we're going to have to split you guys. Up. Just gonna know like, how is this a thing? This thing is huge. How does my little bit of weight make any difference whatsoever on this flight? Apparently it matters. So I learned Apparently something today. But it doesn't matter on this flight. Uh, in Oh, well, good. Okay. Well, I know we just like derailed there, but you're welcome. There's some more information welcome about us. to our podcast. Welcome to our podcast. In command of Flight 401 that night were the three pilots, Captain Robert Loft, First Officer Albert Stockstill, and Flight Engineer uh, Donald Repo. Or repo. Uh, I can't remember. I have a quick question. Is it common to have three pilots? Well, it's the 70s. If you remember back then, you needed like... No, I'm just asking. I genuinely have no idea. Yes and no. I think on the bigger ones they did, Kelsey's probably looking it up for us right now. That's what I was relying on. Okay, so this is according to the FAA, requires two pilots at all time for most aircraft that exceed 12,500 pounds. Other factors such as flight length might also demand more than one pilot. One of the biggest reasons two pilots are required for commercial flights and private jets is for safety. And then I looked up like how many pilots were required in the 70s. Basically, it just said two. So I don't know if maybe it was because that particular airplane... And maybe because it was this whole program was still kind of new. Well, no, it, they were two. Just to reiterate, there were two pilots. There was the captain, Robert Loft, the first officer, Stock, Stockstill, and a flight engineer, Donald Repo. A flight engineer is not a pilot. He, he's going to be the one that helps like course corrections, deal with anything that's dealing with weather, turbulence, I think. Kelsey, you can prove me wrong, probably. From what I remember, little another Sigu, in our safety training, we have at work, we have to watch a video of a very famous flight that crashes due to like people not listening to ATC. 
uh, it's just a way of us saying, hey, like, listen to what people tell you or whatever. But in it, it does have like two flight engineers. It has two pilots. Go ahead. Oh, basically, they um, a flight engineer is part of the flight crew. They check systems before flight, help develop flight plans, blah, blah, blah. I want to know, do they always fly with That's a flight what I was engineer? Wondering. Well, I'm going to look it up. Sorry. Because I, I kind of wondered if that was, it almost sounds like it's somebody in air traffic control that would handle that. I don't think they that. do anymore. I think like technology has advanced so much that uh-huh. you don't need a flight engineer and that's taken up by ATC now. Like previously, communications were lagged from ground to flight. It says sometimes, it says flight engineers can still be found on some larger fixed wing airplanes and helicopters. Yeah. So they're uncommon now. But previously, they used to be on most flights. Most. I mean, it makes sense. You had, I mean, this again, this was like what the up and coming. Now we can actually do autopilot. So it was more getting towards that level of being able to rely on your instruments rather than having to rely so much on manual. Yeah. Direction from the pilot. For sure. They were, however, joined in the cockpit by an Eastern Airlines maintenance specialist. Angelo Dona, Dona Dia, which really confused me because Donald Repo and Angelo Dona Dio, for some reason, my dyslexic brain was like, they're the same person. They're not. So do with that what you will. Thank you for the clarification. Who would ride along in the jump seat. And an off, there was also an off-duty pilot who elected to sit in the cabin he, he, I guess he was just like on the plane. From what I remember, he was on the plane off duty, just to head back home. Yeah. I think that's not too uncommon, especially if they have a flight that has available seats. I mean, that's just a way for them to. Yeah. And we used to have friends who were flight attendants and stuff like that. And they would just like hop on a plane to get back after a trip. Uh, Typically they like to take a job going back but there are certain amount of hours that they can only work and you know not everything can not everything can work out the way you want anyways the 55 year old captain loft was a veteran pilot who had been flying for decades a true old guard captain who had begun his career in the propeller era the other pilots were not inexperienced but none could hold a candle to loft who had nearly 3000 flying hours. That experience only counted for so much, however, as one as none of the pilots had more than about 300 hours on the new L-1011s. I had a feeling that was coming. Yeah, and it's an important detail because the advancement, like I said earlier, the advancements to the 1011s technology was far more advanced than anything previously that had been out. And like the analogy that I gave, which is I'm terrible at analogies, but I keep trying to do it. It would be like a human surgeon trying to operate on an elephant in some cases. So similar, but different. (laughs) Similar, but different. It would be like Paul trying to do my job. We're both portions of IT, but we're very different portions of IT. So that's fair. You know, all I could think of was the Walking Dead with um, Herschel. Uh Like, sometimes you just have to accept what you can get. Any experience is better than none. But also, there are differences. 
he was like a veterinarian. He was a vet, yeah. Yeah. But in a, in a land where you don't have any doctors at all, a vet's better than I have no idea what I'm doing. Flight 401 departed JFK Airport at 9.20 p.m., climbed to its cruising altitude, and headed south towards Florida. The flight was entirely routine, except for in first class, where a passenger proposed to his girlfriend. She said yes. Aw. A couple of hours later, the L-1011 commenced its approach to Miami, with First Officer Stockstill at the controls. Captain Loft ran through the approach checklist, followed by the landing checklist. The weather was clear, and they had the runway in sight. A safe landing seemed imminent. But when Loft attempted to lower the landing gear, there was an immediate problem. The light indicating that the nose gear was down and locked did not illuminate. Quote, I gotta, I gotta raise it back up, he said, trying to trying the age-old technique of turn it off and back on. He raised the landing gear back. IT people, you guys tell us that all the time. Yeah, if it doesn't work, just restart it, reboot it. Typically, that helps. He raised the landing gear back into the wheel wells, then lowered it again with a clunk. Once again, the, quote, nose gear locked, unquote, light failed to come on. Before I continue, in... In this, when your landing gear goes down, and landing gear, it means wheels and things like that, they can lower but not lock. When they go down and they snap into... If you've ever had a scooter, one of those razor blade scooters, and you went to like pop the handles up, but it didn't fully pop, and uh, that, that handle's loose and you tried to scoot on away with it, but it just plopped back down... Uh, that's basically what would happen with a plane, just on a massive level. Uh, the wheels are going to crumble right under you if you try to land with them not locked in place. Or if you, you know, if you had one of those like old uh, Barbie type vehicles where you could like convert it, whether it was like a van or an RV and you could like pop the wheels out and you had to like, you had to do it in a very specific way because if you didn't and you moved it, it would pop back in. That's that's the the idea, basically. Yeah. Right. It's locking it into place so it, it can't move. Yeah. Essentially. Pretty, pretty much. But this was I feel only... like there's a lot of different things that can prevent it from doing that. Yeah. Well, the problem was, is that in this situation, it could be the actual landing gear not locking into place, or it could be a burned out indicator light. Uh, okay. Yeah. So it's like a, a fuse going out in your car. Like your blinker still works, but the fuse is not working. So the indicator inside your car is wonky. So almost, well, so would it be like a false indicator in that situation? Like there wasn't anything actually wrong? It could be. We don't know yet. I mean, I assume. There's something really wrong, but okay. Yeah. But in any case, if you don't know if it's actually locking into place or not, it's not a smart idea to actually land. No, no, I can't imagine. Yeah. So Captain Loft got on the radio and said to ATC, said, quote, 
well, uh, Tower, this is Eastern 401. It looks like we're going to have to circle. We don't have a light on our nose gear yet. And this isn't, there's multiple landing gears on that, but nose gear is a very important one because it's the main stabilizer on it. Uh, and you're just going to... I'm assuming that's at the very front of the plane, so that's preventing yeah. it from literally nosediving. It is. Quote, Eastern 401, heavy roger, said the controller. Pull up, climb straight ahead to 2000, go back to approach control on 128.6. The plan was for Flight 401 to enter a holding pattern west of the airport at 2000 feet where it wouldn't interfere with other planes on approach. And this, this area was over the marshy, swampy area where no planes were. It was just supposed to like stay at 2000 feet and kind of just zoom back around until it can figure out its landing gear situation. Get out of the way. Let the other flights land. Yeah. Strangely enough, Eastern 401 was not the only plane approaching Miami that night with a possible landing gear problem. And this actually ends up being kind of a saving grace for some of the survivors. National Airlines Flight 607 had reported a similar issue, but was unable to resolve it, prompting the airport to roll out a full emergency response in case the plane's landing gear collapsed on touchdown. The air traffic controller had his hands full dealing with National Airlines, so it wasn't in as much communication with um, Eastern 401 at the time. Because they they were almost certain that whenever uh, National Airlines flight went down, it was gonna it was gonna crash land uh, somehow. But because of this, they had emergency services already like surrounding the area and ready to go. Uh, there's also there's a bunch of back and forth um, with ground and the plane. I've put a link in the show notes to the stra- transcript of those conversations. But for the sake of time, I'm going to summarize what happens next. And it's interesting to read through them because you are reading the actual transcript of what the pilots say to air traffic control during this time. And also you're listening to what they say in the cockpit during this time to each other. The plane entered a holding pattern west over the Everglades. The cockpit crew removed the light assembly, and second officer Repo was dispatched to the avionics bay beneath the flight deck to check via a small porthole whether the landing gear was indeed down. So, so they're basically manually checking to make sure that there's actually an issue and it's not a libel. Yeah. Repo went down below. Yeah, so they're going down. They're like, I don't know, like, go down. Like, the next thing you need to do, go down and make sure it's actually going out and, like, staying out or, if you know, whatever. Or if it's just, like, a blown bulb. But during all of this, they're like, what do we do? What are we, sp-? you know, everybody's talking over everybody else. They're trying to figure out this. Everybody's focused on this light. They want to get out of the out of the sky. They're focused on getting out of the sky. That's what their attention is on. 50 seconds after reaching their assigned altitude, Captain Loft instructed First Officer Stockstill to put the L-1011 on autopilot. And in this model, the autopilot could actually do 
a holding pattern. So you could program it to get to a certain altitude and then it would go into a holding pattern. And that's what I said before, where it would circle in a specific area and stay there. For the next 80 seconds, the airplane maintained level flight. Then it dropped 100 feet. And then again, flew level for more than a minute, after which it began a descent so gradual it could not be perceived by the crew. And this is important because as it was slowly but steadily getting closer to the ground, they are all trying to figure out this light situation and the landing gear. Because as far as they know, it's doing what it's supposed to, and it's just in a holding pattern. Yep. In the next 70 seconds, the airplane lost only 250 feet, but this was enough to trigger the altitude warning. It was a C-cord chime located under the engineer's workstation. So if it got below this certain portion during the holding pattern, it would have a C-cord chime that would go through. The problem is, is it came in through the engineer's station and as we know, the engineer repo is below checking on the landing gear. And everybody else is talking over each other, trying to figure out this light situation so they don't hear it. Just perfect chaos. It's, it's yeah. Uh, yeah. In another 50 seconds, the plane was at half its assigned altitude. So we're at like... A thousand feet at this point. Again, very low, extremely low for such a large jet. As stock still started another turn onto uh, 180 degrees, he noticed the discrepancy. The following conversation was recovered from the flight voice recorder later. Stock still, quote, We did something to the alt- altitude. Loft. What? Stock still. We're still at 2,000 feet, right? Loft. Hey, what's happening here? Less than 10 seconds after this exchange, the, le- the jetliner crashed. The location was west northwest of Miami, 18.7 miles from the end of runway 9L. The airplane was traveling at 227 miles per hour. When it hit the ground... The aircraft, in mid-turn, the left wingtip hit the surface first. So it was, it, it seems like somebody had tried to push it back up manually, so it had turned. The wingtip hit the surface first, then the left engine and the left landing gear, making three trails through the sawgrass, each five feet wide and more than 100 feet long. When the main part of the fuselage hit the ground, it continued to move through the grass and water, breaking up as it went. In the tower, the controller suddenly noticed that this radar wasn't picking up Flight 401's transponder properly. Quote, uh, and uh, Eastern 401, are you requesting the equipment? Eastern 401, I've lost you on the radar there. Your transponder. What's your altitude now? The message was met with silence. One more try. Eastern 401, Miami. 
Another pilot soon delivered the chilling news. Uh, Miami Tower, this is National 611. We just saw a big explosion. Looks like it was out west. I don't know what it means, but I thought you should know. Wow. The first people who actually noticed Flight 401 crash weren't ATC, and it wasn't the planes in the sky. It was actually two men who were out in the swamp on an airboat catching frogs. Robert Bud Marquise and his hunting partner, Ray Dixon. These guys, once the flames receded, immediately went to the site to help. Here's a quote from the Medium article that I used uh, in a lot of this, and I think it describes it better than I ever could. Quote, although the flames quickly died down, they managed to pinpoint the location of the crash and rushed to the scene in their airboat, realizing that they had arrived only when their bow bumped up against a dark mass of wreckage. The scene they discovered was hellish beyond all imagination. All around them, people were screaming and crying, bodies stripped of their clothes, lay strewn amid the scattered pieces of plane, and the smell of aviation fluid hung heavily on the air. Braving jet fuel burns on their legs, the two frog hunters jumped into the water and set about saving anyone they could. Their first priority, to find anyone stuck upside down in their seats, and if their legs were still kicking, to turn them right way up. Chills. It. I looked at the images of this and just the wreckage. I. I'm so surprised that people survived this, but they literally did. They came up on this, waited for the flames to recede, and they were just going out and they were just like lifting people out of like they weren't unstrapping them or anything like that. They were trying to get to like as many people as they could and trying to just like get them to a place where they were safer right now. Obviously, they were harmed but just to a place where I can come back and I can save them eventually as many people as we can. And the other problem too is because this was a marsh, a swamp area, it wasn't lit. There was no light. As soon as the flames died down, there was no lighting. And so they're just searching around in the dark. They're listening for people's screams, you know, whatever they can to try and find these people to help them. It's awful. (laughs) Happy birthday. (laughs) The rescue included helicopters, which at first were having a hard time finding the crash site. So Bud grabbed his high-powered frogging flashlight to signal the helicopters to the location. And it worked. Like, the helicopter said we were able to find where it was, again, because it was so dark they couldn't find anything, because of Bud's flashlight. Which, uh, I need... That kind of flash. I, I want a frogging flashlight. I guarantee Paul has that flashlight in his pocket. Just you know, insane. Probably. Over the next few hours, the rescue proceeded. Bud and Dixon ferried people to safety. At one point, they were surprised to find Captain Loft in the cockpit, gravely injured. He was convinced he was going to die, which they told him. They like tried to calm him down and was like, hey, you're not going to die. But he did. Within minutes of them finding him, he actually died right next to his first officer, Stockstill. Among those found alive were flight engineer Don Repo. He would go. He was the person who had gone below to like check on the landing gear. 
the rescue proved chaotic as the plane had crashed nearly 13 kilometers from the nearest road, but emergency vehicles were eventually able to get within 100 meters of the site by driving in single file down the flood control levee, which doubled as a helicopter landing pad. Amid the mayhem, it took 64 minutes for the first survivors to be airlifted from the crash site, and the last weren't evacuated until well after 3 a.m. Initially, 79 people survived, as well as a dog. That's insane to me. Yeah. At all. That they survived? Like, yeah, that anybody survived at, for any length of time after something like this. Well, there's a reason they survived. We'll get to it in the investigation. The dog was the first victim to, to arrive at Mercy Hospital in Hyala. However, two survivors soon died after their injuries, including flight engineer Don Rebo. He did eventually die. But he did give a statement about what had happened before he, he died. Over the following month, two more passengers also succumbed as many of the su survivors fought deadly gas, gangrene infections caused by the bacteria in the swamp water. If you have an open wound and you go into a swamp, it's bad news bears, my friend. It's not going to go well. Cesspool. Florida is a cesspool. I'm sorry, Jenny. <laughs> <laughs> as soon as she said it. Those who could not be treated in hyperbaric chambers were forced to have the infected body parts amputated. The hospital is overrun. They only have a limited amount of those chambers. So people who, yeah. who weren't there, it, first come, first serve, you're not there on time, you're losing a limb. Bye-bye. In the end, of the 176 people on board, 101 died and 75 survived. And I'm also going to count the 65 additional people who didn't make the flight. Uh, they survived, too. This was the largest death toll attributed to a plane crash in the U.S. at the time. It was also the first fatal crash of a wide-body airliner. And at the time, many speculated it was due to the wide bodies protected, like how big it was and like how dense it was that it protected the survivors within the plane, the ones that actually survived, because that is a high survival rate for that type of plane crash. It wasn't. It was due to the soft impact that was made. They landed in a swamp, you know, not... It wasn't hard ground. Yeah, it wasn't hard ground. Later, investigators would also cite the design of the L-1011's passenger seats, which were much stronger than called for by regulations. So they had uh, beefed up them seats. The seats now... That gotta be a, that's got to be the first time that's ever been said. Yeah, well, since then, they are now made out of dental floss and, I don't know, plastic. Hopes and dreams? Yeah, hopes and dreams. Keep praying. If you're on a Spirit Airlines, you're already dead. <laughs> Not to shade Spirit Airlines, but you just have to take turns piloting the plane. That's what I heard. During the investigation into the crash, a frustrating sequence of events began to emerge. When the crew first attempted to lower the landing gear, they received no indication that the nose gear was locked. An inspection of the wreckage revealed that the bulb, that the two bulbs on the nose gear light had burnt out and the gear was down and locked the whole time. They were safe. They were safe to land, but they couldn't because of a burnout bulb. 
And they were doing their due diligence to make sure. Mm -hmm. But the pilots could not have known this without additional verification, which they tried. They sent repo below to try and check the landing gear manually. Their decision to hold to enter a holding pattern until they figured out the status of the nose gear was entirely above board. Like they followed procedure. It was when they leveled off at 2000 feet that events began to go downhill, obviously. After Stockstill engaged the autopilot, a remarkable thing happened. The human pilots simply stopped flying the plane. Loft, Stockstill, and Rebo gave the landing gear light their undivided attention, leaving no one to ensure that the plane remained on course. It was apparent that they subconsciously trusted the autopilot to perform the seemingly simple task of keeping the plane straight and level. Having engaged the autopilot tasks, tasks such as monitoring airspeed and altitude were compartmentalized away as some inconspicuous realm of thought. They're basically trying to say they relied too heavily on autopilot in this situation. But in their defense, and in my opinion, my opinion, outside of all the articles that I read, the L-1011, every advertisement for it, Everything said about it was this plane can fly itself from one side of the United States to the other. You don't even need a pilot. You also didn't give hours and hours and hours of training on this plane. So they're trying to, and and again, yes, pilots should pay attention to what they're doing, but they had advertised this plane as something that didn't need to be constantly monitored when it was on autopilot. So I just want to put that out there. The C chord chime emitted from the flight engineer station when the plane left 2,000 feet was easy to miss when their attention was focused elsewhere, especially since the flight engineer wasn't in the cockpit and wasn't at his station where the chime goes off. I guess my question would be, should he have been the one to go down there and look at that? Yes, that's a part of his job. When you have a when you have a pilot and a co-pilot, and they're just debating about this light, why wouldn't... I mean, and just in theory, because the reason why I say that is because if he's the flight engineer and he has all of these very important tasks that he needs to be monitoring, and if this chime only goes to him, it seems like the idea to begin with was that he should not leave his station and that other people would be the ones to leave their station. That's just me being devil's advocate in this situation. No, I I completely agree with you. But up until this point, they didn't need to put in like procedures and things like that to account for something like that. Because the pilot was never going to leave his station previously. An autopilot such as this had never been in place. So it wasn't like even a, it wasn't even like a thought that they would leave their station, you know? So... The, uh, there wasn't like proper training procedures on, in place for situations that might yeah. come up because they hadn't come up yet. Yeah. But in a lot of this investigation and you'll see, like if you ever look into other like flight crashes and things like that, a lot of the times the, the NSTB, the NTSB and the, um, airline itself will do its own investigation, but they spend so much effort into trying to prove that it was human error done by the pilot instead of recognizing that they have some sort of like 
failure in their processes or in the way they implement something and trying to change it. They're too busy trying to find who to point the finger at. Yes. You can read that and you can be like, oh, okay, yeah, that makes sense that that would be like a uh, human error, whatever. But when you phrase it like that, especially in a situation like that, where you put them in that situation, you didn't give them the tools that they needed to be able to do that. You're not taking, re- it's gaslighting. That's what it is. And it pisses me off. I think that's what it is. It's gaslighting. It's saying, you know what? It was human error. Never seen anything like this before, but in reality, it was because everybody was distracted. You know what? Blame goes on them. That's every corporate response to any situation that ever comes up where the corporation is responsible. That's literally always their response. I agree. I agree. It's it's not my fault. It, it's not the program's fault. It's that person's fault because they didn't follow procedure. Oh, there wasn't a procedure. They should have known better. Oh, we didn't teach them. Well, but common sense tells you. Does it? There's always a reason why it's a person's fault and not my fault as the corporation that put procedures in place and didn't account for this specific situation possibly happening. Yeah. A situation that I've never been put in before. I've never had to account for before. And it's not necessarily that it's it's something that they could have accounted for. That's not the point. The point is accept responsibility when you didn't account for something that is your responsibility to account for. And when yes. you don't accept responsibility and put procedures in place to prevent it from happening in the future. But don't blame somebody else. Stop trying to frame it in the media as if it was a neglectful act done by the victims. So my two cents. But it also gets a little bit worse. The investigation into the crash of Eastern Airlines flight 401 broke new ground in several areas. In its final report on the crash, the NTSB, for the first time ever, cited an over-reliance on automation as a major contributor to the accident. Again, gaslighting. We said that you can rely on this stuff, but don't rely on this because we're going to put it in a report and say it's your fault for relying on it. Nothing that in just a few short months, L-1011 pilots have found its sophisticated autopilot to be so reliable that they habitually allowed it to control the plane with little to no oversight. Only after the accident did reports emerge of other flight crews who had observed the autopilot reverting to CWS, this is like active controls, mode, or disengaging altitude hold after they accidentally bumped the yoke. So like if your butt just like there there was no lock in place for autopilot. Given the lack of training on CWS combined with autopilot with pilots trust of the automated systems, it was probably just a matter of time before the before an L1011 was involved in an accident or a near miss due to this quark. And also you can't call it a quark. That's not a quark. The only time that a near miss is even acknowledged is when it's not a near miss. Let's be honest. When it's a near miss, nobody says anything. Nobody does anything. Oh, that would have been close. And then they continue as, as it was going to happen anyway. But when something disastrous happened, we had no idea. Even if there had been a near miss very recently, they would have no idea because nothing disastrous has ever happened. It's always the disastrous, the, the loss of life. 
that makes people, oh, okay, maybe we should do something. But obviously it was their fault, but we'll make adjustments just in case. Well, and as somebody who works in manufacturing and works in specifically safety and quality in that aspect, what always seems to get me is not that it's a drive to do better. And and I'm not saying this about my company, never would. Uh, they actively try to do things to make safety a priority and quality a priority, which kind of, which go hand in hand. But the whole point is what ticks me off is that they actively try to find ways to go past things that are put into place to bypass those procedures because they take too much time, they take too much effort. And when things like this happen, they find a way to not take ownership or blame of it. And it's not because it was a loss of life. It's because it's a potential loss of profit. When people see that there's a loss of life, you have a high potential for a loss of profit. It has nothing to do with loss of life. And I will go to my grave. It's the loss of goodwill in the people's eyes at that point because they can no longer trust you. I will say I worked for a financial institution that shall remain nameless that I had managers literally telling me, do this, do that, do this, do that. And I'd say, that's unethical and I'm not going to do it. And they're like, oh, well, that's fine. But if you don't do it, you're going to lose your job. Okay, Okay. I guess I'm going to lose my job because I'm not going to do it because it's unethical. And then less than 10 years, not even five years later, they're in the news constantly. So about said unethical behavior. So here's the thing. It does bite you in the ass at some point if you don't do what's best ethically or otherwise, safety or otherwise, it's going to bite you one way or another. Just do it the right way. If you if your goal is to do it in the right way, in the best way possible, in the most safe way possible, you're never going to be wrong. It might cost you profits in the short term, but in the long term, it's going to pay off. Oh, yeah. But corporate, they have a short term mindset. They're only looking for this year's or this quarter's profits. So that's where the problem lies innately is because of that short-term mindset. They're not looking at the future. They're not looking at how can we make things better in the future. They're looking at how can I avoid loss right now? Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter who falls. And it doesn't matter if it's an employee or a customer. And just as a heads up for anybody out there, most Capitalism. uh, capitalism, most companies, most corporations, especially manufacturing companies, some of their targets for the year is to ensure safety and quality on the, like my, every company, safety and quality, especially in manufacturing. That's one of their goals and they're going to do anything to meet that goal. And sometimes they lie. Just so you know. That's corporations in general. That's not my company that I currently work for. Just want to say that. But sometimes they lie. Uh, so keep that in mind. Next time you write on anything that was manufactured or do anything that was manufactured. Also, I'm not saying that the 1011, the L1011 cut corners or anything like that. So it's just a general statement as capitalism, baby. Capitalism. I mean, it's it's about the dollar. And and when you tell cap- corporations that that's what's most important, then that's what they're going to make most important. And everything else falls to the wayside. Kelsey, I think in the future, I want to make a soundbite of me saying capitalism, baby. And then the pew, 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 pew. No, no. You can just like insert it. I can say capitalism button and you can just like insert it into the recording. 
What do you think? I, I'm totally on board. I'm also on board with you um, making a soundbite of, I'm growing my penis right now. <laughs> That's my favorite line from the last episode. <laughs> I, listened to that. I was like, I don't remember saying that. So I was like primed to hear it the whole time. And it was like not until like later in the episode and it popped up out of nowhere. And I was like, oh, shit. That's when I said it. <laughs> uh, you can never, you. there's no guessing what I'm going to say. She doesn't even know what she's going to say. Under my breath. Uh, let's, uh, all right, we have a little bit to go. So a little bit more anger to get to. There's a lot of other information from the NTSB report, but I'm not going to go into detail of it. But what I said before is the gist of it. They did try to point the finger at Captain Law for a couple of different things. One being the oversight BS that basically said he was the captain and needed to delegate better, but that there had not been any training previously on like the procedures in which he needed to delegate things to be like, that's literally all the uh, information I ever get from my managers. You need to do X better. How? That's your problem. Figure it out. Tell me how to do that. Like, I don't know how to do that. If I knew how to do that, I would have previously been doing that. Tell me how to do it. That's all I'm saying. Which, and also, it's it's very victim-blaming, in my opinion. Yeah, it is. It's a classic case of, I need something from you. I don't know how to tell you how to get it. I can't coach you how to get it, but I need it from you. And if you don't get it, I'm going to fire you and I'm going to punish you. X, Y, Z. And it's like, but you can't. That's the difference between management and leadership, by the way. Truthfully, telling me to get you something, but not telling me how to is is telling me. Showing me how to do it and and guiding me through it, that's leadership, that's guidance. Too many corporations are the management. It's it's this. I need this. How? That's your problem. Figure it out. Pure and simple. And then they have they have no liability in their mind because they didn't give you any tools. So whatever you did is on you if it doesn't work. This makes me so happy for my new position because my manager is amazing. (laughs) Love him to death. I'm happy for you. Back to this. They, are you, are you ready for the worst part of this victim blaming thing? But go ahead. They also found a brain tumor during the autopsy for Loft in the area that controls vision. Initially, they tried to say that this was a contributor to the crash. That's convenient. They didn't outright say it, but eventually the NTSB concluded that the captain's tumor did not contribute to the accident whatsoever. I'm only saying that because that was their final official report on it, but I'm hard side eyeing the fact that they came out and said out the gate in this autopsy, he has a tumor that affects the visual portion of his brain, insinuating again that it was his fault that this plane crashed. Get all the way fucked. Get all the way fucked. So mad. Now, most pay- people actually don't know Flight 401 because of the true accident that occurred that day, but because of the haunting. According to the story, popularized by the 1976 pseudo-nonfiction novel Ghosts of Flight 401, Eastern Airlines salvaged intact galley equipment from the wreckage airliner and installed it on another L-1011. 
Now I know where I've heard this story. Exactly. Which, what podcast was that? And that's why we drink. Was it? Mm-hmm. Okay. After which, passengers and crew began seeing lifelike apparitions of Bob Loft and Don Repo in the gallery area. There are actually a lot of accounts of hauntings uh, around Flight 401 or like the planes that took in parts for it. So I do plan to actually do a follow-up to this story on just the hauntings because it in and of itself. Oh, that would be fascinating. In and of itself can be an episode, like a full episode. I was going to include it in this and I was like, oh my God, we don't have time for this because it was just so many. <laughs> but yeah, that's Samantha's birthday episode. Happy birthday. Tragedy. But I do want to make you feel better. I left one event off of the things that have happened on your birthday in the past. It's an event that happened last year. And I think you're really going to enjoy this. On December 29th, 2022, Andrew Tate was arrested on this day after he got into a Twitter squabble with Greta Thunberg and was schooled by her. Happy birthday. I will take that. I will take that. <laughs> Anything against that douche. <laughs> what a douche canoe. Yes, I'll take that. <laughs> Another terrible Andrew. I think what we've learned from this episode is if your name is Andrew, you're a dirtbag. Sorry for Andrews that aren't dirtbags, just like Randy's that aren't, but you're in a bucket now. Yeah, I mean, it's not a good thing. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I, I feel like I the story was really familiar, and I feel like I remember her saying the date, and I was like, well, crap, that was my birthday. Or, sorry, them, because it was M that did it, because M covered this one. Not, not Christine. Yeah. Not Christine. Because it, she cut, co or they covered the haunting part of it. They didn't cover the truth. Yeah, like it was the, very different from this. Like it took me a minute to to actually take it all in because you covered it very differently. But yeah, I remember thinking, man, that's my birthday. And that really sucks. <laughs> well, that's what I was when I went into this. I did the entire research, and until I got to the end of the research, did I see the haunting part? And I was like, that's the, yeah. the entire time I was talking about it. I was like, this sounds really familiar but like I didn't have as much information from wherever I got it from I was like something about this like I think there's like some kind of like ghost aspect to this the so entire time. M covered this one but also I think other ones in the same episode so I don't think it was just this one on that particular episode oh. I think it was like ghost stories from maybe airplane crashes or something or or them using parts from other crashes yeah. in other airplanes that caused hauntings i think is what it was so it wasn't like a full-on disclosure of everything that happened so it, most of this i had never really heard yay but it was right when you got to the haunting part i was like oh yep i know where i heard this because it wasn't uh, yeah. so long ago I, I figured once i got into that if if any if either you or kelsey had heard of it from another podcast because that's what they typically cover they don't actually cover the actual They'll cover the crash, but a high level. It's it's chilling, though. The whole thing, like, it's just, there's something about airplane crashes whenever they're able to do the back and forth between the control tower and the pilots. Oh, yeah. That it just makes it so much more chilling because you know these are people that are trying to figure out what's going on and something's obviously malfunctioning and they're trying to figure it out. And more often than not, a lot of times they're kind of nonchalant about it because they don't think it's anything serious. But when you know what 
the end is going to be because we're not covering it otherwise. It's just that much more chilling because for them, it's just, you know, day to day. And and this is, mm-hmm. oh, okay, well, this is a glitch. So we'll figure it out and fix it. And that's just not what happens sometimes. But, and yeah, the whole gaslighting thing, not cool, but I'm really looking forward to the text that Kelsey sends me when she's editing this because she missed the most haunting part of the story. And I worked so hard on that part. I hope it was okay. But uh, no, you did a great job. Thank you very much for my birthday. Everybody's, I I think anybody's birthday, if you actually started drilling into it, you'd start finding it. Yeah, for sure. It just is what it is. If, If you're looking for noteworthy things, more often than not, it's going to be on the dark side. So yeah. I wasn't super surprised. And I mean, I honestly, like there were other things that I could have covered that would have been more lighthearted, but I know you and this would have been something you would have wanted to hear, yeah. something that was interesting yeah. to you. Now I can go like cry in a bathtub for a while <laughs> because it's so heavy for me. But you did a really great job. Like you really did a great job covering it. So thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Anything for you. That was fascinating. Except for getting on that plane. Yeah. No, 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 plane. no, no trips on a plane for me on my birthday going forward. Noted. Since it's your birthday, I will do the sign off. All we're going to say is happy birthday, Samantha. If anybody's listening to this, raise a drink. It can be wine. It can be coffee or paper airplanes. It can be coffee. It can be wa- actually don't toast water. That's bad luck. It can be tea. It can be whatever. And cheers. Happy birthday to Samantha. Happy birthday, Samantha. Thank you. We love you, bitch. We mean it. Okay, bye. The Reaper will come for us all.